0: With today's lecture, we reached the halfway point in this series of lectures on 20th century ethics. We're a bit past the midway point in the 20th century, but we're certainly at what I call last time in my lecture a kind of tipping point in 20th century ethical theory. In the last lecture, I talked about the two problematics that dominate 20th century Anglophone academic ethics, the kind of meta-ethical paradigm or set of problems associated with the problem of justification and motivation and locating moral judgments in this sort of place between the world and action. The other problematic, the classical problematic of normative theory, which asks us to choose among normative conceptions of the world that focus either on the goodness of lives and the notion of virtue the rightness of actions and the notion of rules or the goodness of consequences and the notion of good states of affairs. It certainly, it happens not overnight, but it happens quite dramatically in the late 1960s, early 1970s. The focus of most academic moral philosophers shifts from this earlier meta paradigm to the traditional paradigm of normative ethical theory. I suggested last time that in a sense what moral philosophy does is to return to the great kinds of problems it was discussing in the 19th century before the crisis brought on by Sidgwick and Nietzsche sort of catapults us into this technical discussion of metaethics in the first half of the 20th century. Now there's absolutely no doubt that the figure and the book that's most responsible for this transformation is John Rawls. And the book is called A Theory of Justice. It's a big book, over 600 pages. It appeared in 1972, and it utterly transformed moral philosophy. Even those who disagree with it, its main claims, as I do, would have to rank it as one of the two or three most important books in moral philosophy in the 20th century. Even though this is really a book about political philosophy, it brings with it a conception of moral philosophy and the method of moral philosophy and the aims and goals of the subject that utterly transforms what everyone else is doing. Rawls himself was in some ways an unremarkable man, in other ways quite remarkable. He was a New England uh, Yankee who had thought about being a pastor in his uh, youth. He spent the Second World War in the Pacific, uh, as did R. M. Hare, who I mentioned earlier. He declined, although he came from a privileged background in certain respects, he declined a commission to, uh, in the army to fight as a regular soldier. He returned to Cornell and Princeton and Harvard after the war with much talent and a deep interest in moral and political philosophy. Rawls' career during the 50s and 60s was in many ways not remarkable, although he wrote a small number of absolutely brilliant articles. He wasn't at the forefront of the field, although for those of us who were students of moral philosophy in the 1960s, we all knew about Rawls. There was a manuscript, a typed manuscript, of this great work of his that was circulating. This was before Xerox machines, of course, and we would find people would have various bits of Rawls' big book. There were rumors about what was going to be in it. Those of us who were students at the time were always interested in what Rawls uh, was up to, and in 1972, we finally found out what it was and it made many people very happy and some other people not so happy. What was in this book? It was a book that attempted to develop a freestanding theory of justice as Rawls puts it and I will talk about exactly what that means in just a moment but more importantly it was a book that returned moral philosophers to what one might think of as the traditional problems of their discipline. Rawls was interested in developing a normative structure that would allow us to criticize contemporary culture and would allow us to justify a certain set of principles which we could use to talk about just economic arrangements, the justice of certain forms of civil disobedience. Recall 1972 was a period right after or uh, we were still in the midst actually of the Vietnam affair, the great cultural turmoil we had in the 1960s about this, the great debates we had had not only about questions of social justice, the new doctrines of liberation abroad in the land, the questions of civil disobedience that had been associated both with the war in Vietnam and the civil rights struggle in the 1960s. It's fair to say that virtually all of the academic moral philosophy in the first half of the 20th century spoke very little to these questions. You could read the moral philosophy of the first half of the century as it went on in our major universities without knowing that we had lived through a Great Depression that we had fought two great world wars, that culture had been transformed in all sorts of ways by new advances in medicine. Rawls' book was a book that engaged culture. Granted, it was boring and dry enough to be written by a philosopher, and it was very long, but anyone could tell it engaged culture in ways that no one had for a very long time. Rawls defended substantive Views. He didn't talk about so much about the nature of justification. He tried to justify principles of, uh, of justice. It's, it's hard to sort of capture today the galvanizing effect this book had on lots of moral philosophers. At, uh, in 1972, after it appeared, there's a very famous review of it in the New York Review of Books, which is sort of the Bible, of course, of, of American intellectuals a review by Stuart Hampshire, a very distinguished British philosopher, in which he compared the book to Aristotle and Hobbes and Rousseau. He declared it the most important book in 20th century ethics. So far, he didn't agree with all of it, but he pronounced that it would change moral philosophy in ways that we almost too uh, grand for us to imagine, and Stuart Hampshire was certainly right. The young Peter Singer, Peter Singer, who's now infamous for defending infanticide from his position as the Chair of Human Values at Princeton University, wrote a little piece in the New York uh, Times Magazine in 1974, which was entitled, Philosophers Back on the Job. And this piece was referred to Rawls and how we could even improve Rawls, that finally philosophers were back doing in ethics what they were supposed to be uh, doing. Rawls gave a talk at Notre Dame in 1969, which I attended, and there were seven people in the room. Four years later, in 1973, I was at Oxford University, and there was a course given on Rawls' book, and there wasn't a hall at Oxford University large enough to hold the crowds who were there. This book changes moral philosophy, and The reason it angered some people, one reason, is that Rawls doesn't open this book by attacking the meta-ethical tradition I've talked about so far. He doesn't say that Moore and Ayer and Stevenson and all of these people were doing the wrong thing. He simply ignores them. Richard Hare, who was the leading non-cognitivist of that time, dominating moral philosophy in certain respects from his position as the Whites Professor of Moral Philosophy at Oxford University, Richard Hare gets only two footnotes in this over 600-page book. And with regard to metaethics, Rawls simply says, well, questions of definition and meaning are not very interesting in ethics. We have to develop theories and then, as in science, these questions of meaning will be tidied up by people after we're finished. He ignores a whole tradition and starts ethics down a different road altogether, and he starts ethics down a road that connects it very directly to the tradition of Kantian moral philosophy. That position in the middle on the diagram I was uh, using last time to illustrate the differences among types of normative theory. Now I'm not going to focus so much today on why Rawls' view is Kantian, although I'll say something about that toward the end of the lecture. What I do want to do is to give you a flavor of what this book is all about. As I said it's a very complex book and anything we try to do here will be hopelessly inadequate. And I should say at the beginning Rawls' views have developed in very important and interesting ways since the uh, uh, Theory of Justice appeared. Rawls remains at the center of moral philosophy until his death just a, a year ago when his life was celebrated around the world as one of the most, if not the most, significant moral and political thinkers in the 20th century. I'm not going to say anything about Rawls' later views today, although in my final lecture I will say something about the direction in which Rawls' views go later in life because that has a lot to do with where we think ethics might go in the next century. But what's this book all about? I was talking two lectures ago about what I call the neo-naturalist critics of non-cognitivism, people like Foote and uh, Philippa Foote and John Searle. John Rawls, too, had participated in the 1950s and 60s in this sort of critical enterprise. He wrote a very famous piece called Outline of a Decision Procedure for Ethics, and there we get some of the central ideas already articulated that will come to fruition in a theory of justice. In this paper, outline of a decision procedure. Rawls says already in the 1950s we need to forget about all this meta-ethical stuff and whether what the meaning of moral terms might be, whether the meaning they name, whether goodness names a non-natural property or not. And we need to focus simply on this question. What kind of procedure do we need to decide which principles or rules are adequate in ethics and politics? With his focus on Rules and principles. You can already see the sort of Kantian side of Rawls' picture. And he gives an answer which to many people seemed to be straightforwardly question begging at the time. He said, and let me read this off my notes because it's come and get it right a moral judgment is justified just in case it follows from principles that are appropriately associated with the considered judgments of competent judges. Now what's that, what's that all about? This is the view he defends in this quite complicated article. Rawls' focus here is on the considered judgments of competent judges. Rawls' suggestion in that article is, we needn't distract ourselves with questions about what moral judgments mean. What we need to do is identify, in the community of people with whom we talk, persons of which we, whom we think of as competent judges. And here we use perfectly ordinary criteria. People who don't get drunk all the time. People who don't let their emotions carry them away. People who are prepared to look at the facts. People who are at least moderately intelligent and can understand the world. People who don't always put their interests first. They don't have to be Mother Teresa and always give up everything for everybody else, but they have to be moderately concerned about Others, ordinary, reflective, intelligent, concerned, sensitive people. We don't want sociopaths, we want people who understand other other people. These are competent judges. What are considered judgments? These are the judgments that these competent judges would make under conditions where we think we make good judgments. Judgments that you make when you're not in a rush, when you're not facing bankruptcy, when people aren't threatening to harm you if you judge one way or another. Considered judgments are the judgments that we make when we have time to make them, we have the kind of reflective capacity to make them. Rawls says if we can identify competent judges, and it seems like we can, we all understand this, and consider judgments, then the right principles for ethics are the principles that would yield the very judgments that these people produce if those judgments were to be deduced from these principles. It's as though we're to take the judgments of some particular wise person. Think of the wisest and most competent and most decent person you know who probably makes his or her judgments not by applying any set of theoretical principles but probably just from exercising good judgment. Rawls says, imagine what kind of principles we would need to produce those judgments, consider judgments of competent judges, that would be produced by that person without principles. Those are the principles which we should adopt in ethics. And politics, when the judgment's being made are judgments about ethics in politics. This is the idea of the outline of the decision procedure for ethics. It's of course, much more complicated. Philosophers always make things much more complicated. But that's the central idea. A Theory of Justice, all 600 and whatever pages of it, is Rawls' attempt 15 years after writing this article to apply that method to the problem of social justice. So Rawls asked the question, What is? what are the correct set of principles for thinking about social justice? Where he means by social justice, that set of what's necessary for what he calls the basic structure of society, the basic sort of institutional structures, the way the government relates to us, the way we regulate industry, the kinds of rights we give to people, what kinds of principles would appropriately regulate the basic structure of society if we're to seek justice? This is the problem of the book A Theory of Justice. And notice it's A Theory, not the theory. And Rawls suggests that the main idea of his theory is this that, and he calls this the main idea, that an adequate set of principles of justice would be principles that are first of all principles, again notice the kind of Kantian sound of this, that free and reasonable persons that is people who aren't forced in any sense and have sort of reflective powers who are concerned to further their own interests, these are people who aren't again overtly altruistic, would accept an initial position of equality as defining the fundamental terms of their association. Now Rawls puts this forward as what most of us would simply agree with if we think hard about the very nature of social justice and it seems, we have to admit, it seems pretty plausible. We're going to have a set of principles that All of us as free and reasonable and who are concerned with ourselves would accept in this kind of initial position of equality. Rawls calls this view of justice the view of justice as fairness and this comes to be the kind of slogan for Rawls' view and he calls it that not because some people mistakenly sometimes suggest that Rawls identifies justice and fairness although there's a close connection. It's that Rawls' view is that the correct principles of justice will be those principles that would be chosen by people under fair conditions, as he calls it, in an initial position of equality and as defining the fundamental terms of their association. Okay, this is the main idea. How are we to understand this notion of initial position of equality and how do we proceed from here? Rawls has two main methodological ideas. One, the idea of reflective equilibrium, which is very closely connected to that central thought I suggested to you from the outline of the decision procedure article and his notion of the original position. Just a couple of words about each of these. Reflective equilibrium is one of Rawls' great contributions to contemporary moral philosophy. It's his suggestion, it's his generalization of that method in the outline of the decision procedures. And the the suggestion is something like this. If we're interested in thinking in the most general way about how we can arrive at reasonable views in ethics, where we have all of these difficulties of attaching moral judgments to facts about the world, we should proceed in the following way. We should begin with considered judgments and i say considered judgments one an initial set the judgments that we would make of the sort i talked about before under conditions that are likely to render judgments plausible then we ask ourselves the question what kind of normative theory would justify these judgments and we sort of formulate that then we proceed by deducing from this theory a set of considered judgments. Now that the theory has been refined and fixed up, we're going to get a slightly different set of judgments. And we see if we can live with these judgments, but we might be uncomfortable with some of those. They might demand too much equality or too little equality. So we ask again, what kind of normative theory? And we'll reformulate the normative theory to fit these considered judgments. And then, of course, we move on and again apply it to the world and ask questions about what considered judgments would be uh, appropriate here. The idea of reflective equilibrium, Rawls says, is that we reflect about ethics by beginning with what we believe, sort of formulating in theoretical terms, testing against our sort of reaction to what that would commit us to. And we move on until our considered judgments are in reflective equilibrium, our judgments and our theories fit together nicely there's no more conflict or as he says in one place until exhaustion sets in this is a, what philosophers call a dialectical process that can go on perhaps almost forever notice this method makes it unnecessary for us to ask these metaethical questions about the relationship of moral judgments to the world and again Rawls is very happy with that result now Reflective equilibrium is going to provide the framework for the justification of these principles. More specifically though, that framework is going to be associated with what I call the original position. Rawls is interested in trying to, remember he says that the main idea of the principle of justice is that the correct principles will be those principles that would be chosen by free and equal persons under conditions of fair equality how do we understand those conditions? Rawls proposes the choice condition under in the original position as his answer to that question. And this is one of his most brilliant and most influential ideas. Rawls, like Kant, wants in important respects to revive the classical social contract theory of justice and ethics in general. That is, the view roughly that the correct principles of ethics or politics are those principles that would have been chosen in a kind of contractual situation. The classical views of Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century suggested that political principles are those principles that would have been chosen by people in the state of nature who are trying to forward their own interests and they bind themselves to one another to certain sorts of principles to make a decent human life possible. John Locke has a slightly different view of the social contract. These ideas are at the heart of the sort of democratic revolution that came about at the founding of our country. Rawls wants to introduce a kind of contract situation that's, as he puts it, hypothetical. We don't have, as Hobbes seems to suggest, people coming out of the woods and actually signing a piece of paper, or for that matter, coming over on the Mayflower and signing a piece of paper, rather we put ourselves into a hypothetical situation and we imagine ourselves to be in what he calls the original position, and in the original position we are ignorant with regard to our place in society, our class position, our social status, our fortune in the natural lottery, that is whether we're going to be born smart, or not intelligent, uh, beautiful, or not so beautiful, talented, or not so talented. We're ignorant of our intelligence, our strength, our state of health. We make choices, as Rawls famously puts it, behind a veil of ignorance about our particular properties. We are knowledgeable, however, with regard to the laws of nature, including the laws of the social sciences. We understand human life, but we don't know who we are or what particular properties we have. We're also knowledgeable with regard to what Rawls calls primary goods, those are things like what things are good? the most basic goods in human life that we have to want if we want anything at all. So we know we want wealth and we want power and we want health, but we don't know whether we want to be a musician, whether we want to be an academic, whether we want to be a great athlete, whether we want to be a classical scholar. We don't know these things, but we know we want to be successful in this general instrumental sense. Now, the original position is finally made up of people who are fully self-interested. We imagine ourselves in this position, the original position, ignorant of what we're going to be like when the actual world gets underway, when the veil of ignorance is lifted, but we know what human life is like, we know we want to be at least moderately wealthy, and we're self-interested. The question is, what principles of justice would we choose under these conditions to govern Rawls famously suggests that the answer to this this question is quite straightforward that there are two principles that we would choose the first which he calls the Liberty principle each person is to have an equal right to the most extensive liberty compatible with a similar liberty for others and secondly what he calls the difference principle social and economic arrangements Uh, inequalities, insofar as there are any, are to be arranged so that they are both reasonably expected to be to everyone's advantage and attached to positions and offices open to all. Now these two principles have been the subject of an enormous amount of debate in political philosophy and moral philosophy over the last quarter century. I'm not going to contribute to that debate in these lectures. What's most important about Rawls is not the particular content of these principles, although this is important for reasons I will touch on later in these lectures. But what's most important is that Rawls steps forward in over 600 pages develops an argument for substantive principles, in this case quasi-political principles, but his method provides a model for all of ethics and he introduces principles and defends them that make real substantive, again to use that word, claims about how we should live our lives and how we should arrange our institutions. That's something new in Anglophone academic moral philosophy. In the next lecture I want to return to Rawls briefly and say something about why this is a Kantian view and then turn to the next new development in this sort of revisiting of classical normative theory, the development of exciting and new consequentialist uh, normative theories associated with classical utilitarianism. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.